Well, some, something that you may not know about me is that I, I cannot handle tangled cords. I, um, wherever they may be. So behind my TV, for example, I work hard to keep those cords clean and untangled. And yet, no matter how hard I try, it seems that every time I need to go behind there to plug something in or unplug something, it's a mess. It's a disaster. There's cords everywhere. They're tangled up. I never can quite get rid of the tangle, though my soul yearns for it. And I know it's possible. I know this is a possible thing to do. Those cords did not come tangled. Uh, Quite the contrary, they came nicely packaged. I know this is a possible thing to do, and yet it seems beyond me. Though I try, I simply cannot seem to tame the cords in my life. When it comes to our theology, when it comes to our understanding of God, we often want everything to be neat and clean. We want all the cords to be untangled, and we want everything to be nicely. And We can see it all, and it makes sense to us. It's clear, it's easy, we can rest. And of course, um, we should want to understand God as, as, as well as we can. Um, we should desire to have categories to help us understand God and how he works. Indeed, this is what theology is very helpful with as we try to pull apart the different elements, for example, of salvation and how that works. It's, it's helpful to have categories. It's a good thing. But sometimes we run into um, a text of Scripture, a verse or a passage, and it puts everything back into confusion. It takes our nicely, uh, nice chords, our neat chords, and it throws them back into a jumble, into confusion. And we're left trying to, again, uh, sort things out, sort out our understanding of God. And this experience, it can be unsettling. It's not always the most pleasant, if, especially if uh, you, know, you like things neat and clean the way I do. This can be a, a, an unsettling thing. And Habakkuk is one of those books that can cause this kind of tension, this kind of confusion, that can take our nice chords and our understanding of the Lord and, and, and confuse, them, confuse it a little bit. It does this because it tackles one of the big questions of life, a few of the big questions of life. But if you'll recall, last week, it tackles the question of why it is that there's injustice in our world. If you'll recall, Habakkuk asks the Lord, how long? How long are you going to put up with this? If, if you'll remember, um, the, the, time of the, most, the time that um, Habakkuk was most likely written was during the reign of King Jehoiakim, and we talked about that last week. If you'll recall, um, the Bible tells us he, he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Um, the book of Jeremiah tells us that he uh, put a prophet to death. And he also tells us a story of him having the scroll of Jeremiah read to him, the word of the Lord read to him. And as it's read, he, he casually rips pieces off and tosses it in the fire and just complete and utter disregard for God and his word. He's a, he was a wicked man and it was a wicked time. And this is the, the situation that Habakkuk sees and he says, how long, Lord, are you going to put up with this? Justice is not occurring. And so we know this question as we look around in our own world, and we might have come up with answers for ourselves to this significant question. A friend of mine 
uh, helpfully pointed out that we tend to answer this question by separating God from every bad thing that happens. So we attribute all bad things that occur to either man or to Satan, but we keep it far away from God. He has nothing to do with this. It's not him. It's, it's, it's got to be man or Satan. God has nothing to do with it. And then we attribute the good things to God. So we, we talked a little about this last week when we talked about providence and doctrine of providence. A lot of times you hear this a phrase, something like, oh, it's a sweet providence. And, and so we tend to like the things that are good. We say, oh, the providence of God, that's wonderful. And yet the providence of God extends to everything, not just the things that are wonderful. So we sometimes separate God from, from anything bad that might happen. But we saw last week that God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint was a surprising one. He tells Habakkuk, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. So as we saw, I talked about last week, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. And this was God's answer. They are going to come. I'm raising them up and I'm going to send them to bring judgment on Judah. They're going to be his horrible instrument of justice. And they're a nasty group of people. And so, of course, on the one hand, this is good. God is in control. It's not out of control, as it may seem. But on the other hand, this raises some pretty serious questions. How can this possibly be? How can God use a wicked nation to judge another group that's not even as bad as them? And it throws our categories of God and how he works into confusion again. It puts it back into a tangled mess. And then again, we have to try to work it out and sort it out and straighten it out and and figure out how does this fit. And so Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk helps us with this. And so turn with me, uh, if you have your Bible, to Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And we're going to work our way through this. And we're looking at this series as we started last week through till uh, we'll do two more um, weeks in Habakkuk. We're looking at how Christians are called to live in a world that seems totally out of control and against God. And so how do we make sense of this? This world we see that looks out of control. Last week we saw how, as a matter of fact, God is still in control. He was in control even in Habakkuk's day, even as he's looking around him and it doesn't appear to be that way. He's in control. And this week... We're going to look at how Christians, how we are to navigate this rebellious world by first trusting that God's justice is certain, though it seems delayed. So that's number one, trusting God's justice is certain, though it seems delayed. Number two, trusting that God's justice will come upon all of the wicked, all of them. And number three, we press forward in a life of faith. So before we jump into the outline, let's just read Habakkuk's Lament. This is Habakkuk's second complaint or lament. It's his response to what the Lord has said. Again, the Lord's response to Habakkuk's question of injustice. He says, I am in control. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're on their way. They're going to be on their way. They're coming to, ju- to bring judgment. And so here's now how Habakkuk responds to that. He says, Are you not, this is chapter 1, verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the wicked man, Babylon, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand on my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So as Habakkuk begins his response to God, notice he expresses faith in God first. So he knows God is everlasting. He hasn't just arrived on the scene. He's everlasting. He's holy. He's of pure eyes. Verses 12 and 13. He also knows that this judgment will not be the full end of Israel. As he says, we, we will not die. And he says, you've established them for a judgment and have established them for a re- reproof. He knows that God has ordained Babylon as a judgment. The Lord has told him that. He understands this is going to happen now. But he also knows that God will leave a remnant in accordance with his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his covenant with David. This cannot be the full end of God or end of Israel. And yet, what Habakkuk does know about God, that he is holy, that he's everlasting, he's pure, he's the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, what he knows about God is what causes this confusion about the response that God gave him and how these things fit together. And the essence of his confusion is in verse 13. He says, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? So he's, he understands, yes, we deserve some punishment, some justice and judgment here. He's cried out for that. But how could it be that God would use a group of people far more wicked than us to bring about that justice? That doesn't seem to make sense. I'm sure what he had in mind here was a just king would arise within Israel, do away with the enemies, and all would be well in the kingdom. Is, is likely the thing that Habakkuk has in mind as he cries out for justice. But God tells him, no, he's sending this wicked nation. And so the question then, how does this fit? How does this fit with the holiness and purity of God? Habakkuk then gives further description of the wickedness of Babylon in verses 14 to 17. So though God is the one who made mankind like the fish of the sea, Babylon draws them up like a fisherman with a hook and with a a dragnet. So he arrogantly exercises control over people. That's not his right. He rejoices in his ability and he sacrifices Babylon to his net because his, his net gives him this ability to live in luxury, he says. So if you'll recall back in verse 11 last week, we saw how Babylon, God says in verse 11, their own might is their God. Their own might is their God. And that's what he's talking about here. When he talks about they they draw people out with a hook, they gather people up with a dragnet, and then they sacrifice to that net. They worship their power. They worship this authority they seem to have. This is their their God. 
Their might enables them to plunder others, and they worship it. And Habakkuk asks if this is to go on forever. You know, God, you've raised them up. Does this carry on forever? What's after this? And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk takes his stand like a watchman on a tower, watching for enemy troops, watching for anything on the horizon. He's diligently waiting, and he's looking for God's answer. He's waiting for God's answer. And at the same time, though, he's also searching for the answer himself. So he says he's going to look out to see what he will say to me. He's looking for God's answer and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So he's, he's asking for God to answer him, and he's also searching out for an answer to his own complaint. And these are, these are reasonable questions that Habakkuk has. And he asks them of the Lord, I would say, respectfully. He's not jettisoning, getting rid of what he knows about God. He's, he's confident God is just and holy. I should say he's confident, he's holy, he's pure, he keeps his promise, his covenant. And yet he's got honest questions, sincere questions. How does this all fit together? And he's awaiting an answer while he's continuing to think about it, how he answer, will answer his own question. And so this is a commendable way to bring our complaint to God. And I think there's much to, for us to even mimic here when we have complaint, is, is coming to God in humility, searching out answers, asking him for help, crying out to him. This is a, a noble way he's doing this. And so let's look now at the Lord's response to Habakkuk's second lament. And as we do, you know, as we look into our own world around us, we don't live in Habakkuk's day, but there's injustice and, and there's wicked people in power all over the place and we have no idea how things are going to play out. We talked more about that last week. We know God's in control. We learned that last week. But we still see the wicked prosper and we see the righteous or even just the less wicked people being oppressed by the most wicked people. And so how do we navigate this? Well, we see we're to do this by the first part of our outline, trusting that God's justice is certain, though it seems delayed. His justice is certain. So read with me in chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So Habakkuk is instructed to write this vision down, the vision he's received. So this is, its fulfillment was a number of years away, perhaps 25 years until Judah would go into exile at the hand of Babylon. And so Habakkuk's told to do his duty as a prophet, write this stuff down, write it down. This is going to happen. And he's to make it plain. Make it plain on tablets so that the one who reads it may run. This could refer to the, the herald uh, who, who runs around reading it to different people and spreading the word that way. Or it's possible this phrase uh, refers to the person who, uh, who, who, who is to flee once they read it. Flee from the wrath that's coming. Um, regardless of its precise meaning, Habakkuk is called to write down and record what's happening and to make it clear. This is no mumbling on God's part. This is one of the things that establishes 
Yahweh the Lord as the true God. He says things in advance and they happen. And so he says, write this down. Make it clear. In verse 3, God says that though the vision may seem slow in coming to pass, it most assuredly will come to pass. It awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. That is, it's absolutely certain. This is going to happen. It's hastening even, though it seems to us like perhaps it's slow. Why have you not done this already? Why is there not justice now? It's coming. It's coming in God's timing. This vision concerns God's judgment for Judah, which we saw last week. And it, and it concerns God's justice and judgment on Babylon, which we'll see more of as we, as we keep working through this. It involves God's use of nations. Again, he's raising up Babylon. And so while things seem delayed to Habakkuk and perhaps others in his day, things are actually right on schedule. God's justice is certain, though it may seem delayed to us. Without question, there's much wickedness in our world. And we can look on in dismay as it seems to go unpunished, But just as God's plans for Judah and Babylon were on target according to his timing and his plan, so now he is still in control. Justice will occur. Habakkuk, in his day, is told details of of how this would play out and what this would look like. Babylon's going to raise up, they're going to come, and then as we'll see, Babylon themselves are going to get judged as well. But in our time, we're not told exactly how things are going to play out in 2017 and beyond. We're not told exactly the way in which God is raising up nation X and bringing low nation Y. We don't know exactly how that will all play out. But a lesson from this book is that God is in control. And he is administering judgment and justice. And ultimately, we know that God is moving history toward its appointed end. He will bring about a final judgment. And so even even those who appear to get away with wickedness on this earth will not escape. So whether or not we see wicked people cut down in their prime, or whether we see them live long and seemingly prosperous life on this earth, eventually... Justice will be done. It will be done. So we need to trust then that God's judgment will come. It's certain. Whether it's identifiable by us or not, it will not delay. Sometimes we see something and we say, that's justice. That was just. And and we can rejoice when justice occurs. But other times we don't see it. But nobody will escape. All the earth will fall silent before the Lord. And so we must wait on the Lord. As we live in a wicked world, we wait on the Lord and we trust the surety of divine justice, even when we have a hard time seeing it or can't see it. So we're trusting, trusting that God's justice is certain, though it seems delayed. Number two, We live in this this rebellious world, trusting that God's justice will come to all of the wicked. To all of the wicked. It's certain and it will come to all. Let's read verses 4 and 5. Behold, his soul is puffed up. 
It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The Lord declares that Babylon's soul is puffed up. It's not upright. Babylon is arrogant. He uses here in verse 4, there's a singular pronoun, his soul. He is used throughout this, this chapter. It's likely a reference specifically to the king of Babylon. Specifically. But also the nation as a whole. And additionally... I think there's good reason to see this as applying also to the wicked in general, wicked man in general, wicked nations in general. It's true of Babylon. It's aimed here directly at Babylon, but it's not restricted merely to Babylon. And if you were to jump ahead to the end of the book of end of the Bible to Revelation 17, you see Babylon there represents um, the wicked, godless um, city of man. And, uh, and so I think, you know, the Bible itself under, even, even makes this connection, that this isn't just, just referencing Babylon, though certainly that's primarily who Habakkuk has in his sights, or the Lord, I should say, has in his sights as he tells this to Habakkuk. So the wicked man is puffed up and arrogant, and this is contrasted with the righteous one who lives by faith. And we'll come back to verse 4 um, towards, in a little bit. But in verse 5, wine is mentioned, and it seems kind of out of nowhere. It seems a bit odd, except that Babylon, the Babylonians, were notorious revelers. They were known for their drunken parties and drunken ways. And it's no coincidence or surprise that in Daniel 5, when the, the Babylonian Empire is overrun, it's in the midst of this drunken festival. Uh, you can read that in Daniel chapter 5. Because they were, they were known for this. Babylon's greed is compared in verse 5 to death. You know, you think of death, it never has its full. It's never, it's never full, never has its fill. Keeps taking more and more people. This is how Babylon's greed. And like Habakkuk lamented earlier, Babylon gathers nations to himself and collects people as a possession. And so, God has ordained Babylon as a judgment against Judah, but now he begins to lay out the guilt of Babylon and the reality of their impending judgment as well. They will not escape. They are an arrogant, boastful, wicked nation to be sure, and they too will receive judgment from God. And in verses 6 to 20, which we're going to go through in a second, there are five woes given in 6 to 20 that outline the guilt of Babylon and the fact that they will not escape. And they're written as a taunt song, as if to provoke and mock Babylon, and indeed any who might be guilty of these sins. And so let's read the first woe, uh, verses 6 to 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who leaps, who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, 
because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So this taunt is put in the mouths in verse 6 of all these, shall not all these take up their taunt. This is a reference to the enemies of Babylon, the ones that they have been oppressing and drawing out and crushing. These, it's put in their mouths as though they are now taunting and scoffing Babylon. And the first woe is aimed specifically at the greed, the extortion, the violence of Babylon. They've taken what's not theirs. They've demanded pledges of money from people under threat of force. And God promises that nations they've treated this way will rise up against them and plunder them in return for their own plundering and for the blood that they've spilled all over the earth, everywhere they've gone. It's going to turn back on their heads. Read the second woe, uh, starting in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So Babylon has amassed stolen goods, evil gains, he says, and they've used them to build high nests, he says. So if you think of an eagle that builds a nest high up in the trees, away from danger, away from harm. So they've stolen goods and they've built with these goods fortresses that keep them safe. And yet, the Lord says this brings shame on Babylon as they've cut off many people and stolen from them. And for this reason, the Lord says, you have forfeited your life. Verse 10. The materials they've stolen and used to build these nests The stones and the timber beams, they will cry out against them as a testimony of their wickedness. So notice, their actions do not escape God's eye. He sees all, he knows all, he even knows where their beams and stones came from. The things that they've built their mighty fortresses out of, that they worship, that is their glory, God knows how they got those by plundering others and stealing it from them, things that are not their own. And they have forfeited their life because of this. Let's continue to the third woe in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the foundation of their cities, of Babylon's cities, is bloodshed and iniquity or crime. This is who they are. This is the foundation of their society. And yet, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, has determined that their labor, their hard work in all of this, is for nothing. The nations weary themselves for nothing. This pursuit is vanity for Babylon. Instead, one day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Babylon's legacy 
is nothing. It will be nothing. It is vain. And again, if you jump to Revelation 17, you see that their legacy is actually tied to wickedness, the wickedness of mankind and wicked nations the world over. Their, their labor has been for nothing. But the Lord's renown, by contrast, will one day fill the earth. And this is ultimately an eschatological promise, an end times promise. When all the wicked will finally be put away and the knowledge of the Lord will indeed fill the earth as waters the sea. Let's move on to the fourth woe in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This woe again takes aim at their debauchery, their drunkenness, their revelry, which they spread everywhere they go, and which they force upon others and they bring others into. And while Babylon treats others with contempt in this way and uncovers their nakedness, it is Babylon ultimately who will be exposed, naked before the Lord. Their uncircumcision will be plain, will be exposed. They enjoy the cup of wine, this cup of drink. They, they party in this way. This is who they are. They're known for this. But the cup that's coming for them is the cup of the wrath of God in the Lord's right hand. It's coming for them. They will drink the fury of God. Their glory will be turned into shame. And what they did to Lebanon will fall back against them. The violence, their destruction of man, their destruction of beasts, their destruction of cities, this will all come back upon their own heads. The fifth woe in verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The final woe exposes the folly of their idolatry. They have mute idols that are crafted by men, made by the hands of men. They cannot teach, except that there is a sense, he says, in which they teach, in that they lie. In fact, they're not gods at all. They lie about being God. They can't teach. They can't speak. There's no breath in them, he says, even though it's overlaid with precious metals like gold. It's, it's useless. It's a creation of man. There's nothing in it. And of course, when we read of these descriptions of idols, um, modern man may think that we're beyond this practice. We don't make idols in this way, but we continue to worship that which is created, that which is not the creator. This is at the root of idolatry, and it continues to be a problem. In contrast 
to these mute, useless idols. Yahweh, the Lord, is in his holy temple. Likely a reference, it could be referring to the temple in Jerusalem, but likely it's a reference to his heavenly sanctuary. And before him, the earth is called to silence in verse 20. The Lord indeed rules the world. He sits on his throne. He's in his sanctuary. And man is to keep quiet before him. To cease with blasphemous boasts. Those idols of Babylon are nothing. But God sits on his throne. He sits in his holy temple. And the earth is called to hush before him. And so in these verses we see Babylon will not escape. God's condemnation of Babylon is clear. He knows where they got their beams and who they really belong to that make up their materials to build their sanctuaries, their fortresses, I should say. He knows their empire is founded upon wickedness and bloodshed and and violence. He knows their revelry and debauchery and their godlessness and how they worship their own might and other mute idols. And they will pay. So we've seen this vision of God's justice. It will not delay. It will certainly come to pass. And we see here that even Babylon, who will for a season enjoy victory and is actually at this time just on the rise. It's not even the main world power yet. So it's still in its infancy as, a, as an empire. It's going to enjoy a time, a season of victory, but ultimately will not prevail. This nation will be brought to nothing. And so again, as we look out and see wickedness prospering all around the world, all around us, this passage helps us see and understand that nothing escapes God's notice. He sees it all. The judge of the earth sees all. And there will be a reckoning. Every person, whether a king of a great nation or whether a lowly citizen of a nothing country, every person will answer to their creator. And so, of course, as we think of this reality, it ought to help us remember and understand our, our need for Christ. We've perhaps, you know, we could, we'll argue, of course, so I've never founded a city on bloodshed, but remember, the root of this wickedness is back in verse 4. He's puffed up. His soul is not upright within him. And this is not just the condition of the king of Babylon. This is the condition of children of Adam. And it manifests itself in different ways. But this is the human condition. And so we have need of a refuge from our arrogant sinfulness. And we must flee to the risen Christ who himself is a glorious and gracious and good Savior, extending grace, extending mercy and forgiveness to all who come to him in faith. And the judgment of God fell on him for the wickedness and sin of all who trust in him, that we might go free, that we indeed might live. And so we must trust that no wickedness is going to escape God's notice. 
It's a reminder for us to flee to Christ. It's a reminder for us that our only hope is Christ. We would not escape that judgment ourselves if not for Christ. But then also, as we look out and see justice seemingly going undone, justice is not happening, it's perverted, we remember that ultimately none of this escapes God's notice, and he is the just and good judge. Number three, we navigate life in this rebellious world by pressing forward in a life of faith. So if you go back to verse four, back to verse four of chapter two, we read this comparison already, but this is such an important verse. Let's read it again. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so in contrast to the arrogant man, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous man is the one who recognizes his or her, righteous woman, need for God, who comes to God on God's own terms and trusts God's word. Again, this is contrasted with arrogance. The soul of the king of Babylon, the arrogant man, it's puffed up. It's not right within him. It's puffed up. It's pride. It's proudful. But the man or woman of faith knows they have nothing to offer God. We must come to him empty-handed, asking for mercy, asking for grace. And God's people have always received grace and mercy by faith, by coming to him in faith. Paul quotes this verse twice in the New Testament, in Romans 1, 17, Galatians 3, 11. And he does it to teach us that we are justified before God, we're declared righteous before God by faith, not works. But this text here in, in Habakkuk 2 says, says more than that as well. We not only come to him for salvation and mercy to be received by faith, but we continue in faith. We continue to live by faith. The righteous continue on in a life of faith. That's what he's saying. So we come in faith and we're to continue in faith. And so there's ultimately really no separation between believing God for salvation and living a life of faithfulness. And Paul makes that clear too. So even in, in, in Romans 1, where he talks about being justified uh, by faith apart from works, he goes on in, in chapter 6 to make very clear that a believer will continue in a life of fruitfulness. And so we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but you know this, you've heard this, saving faith is never alone. Saving faith manifests itself in a life of faith, in a life of trusting God, of seeking Him, and of seeking to obey Him. Certainly it's not a perfect obedience, but it is characterized as a life of obedience, repentance when we fail, trusting His Word, taking Him at His Word. And again, this is why James can say that faith without deeds, without works, is dead. Because it's not a true faith. It's not a true saving faith. If someone claims they believe in the Lord, they've come to Him in faith, but they don't continue on in faith, there's no evidence of that. James says that's a dead faith. That's not a real, true, saving faith. And so all of this is here in Habakkuk. To live a life of faith in God means we are to come to God in faith. We come empty-handed and trust God and we trust His Word. 
And so, as a result, we live obediently to his word because we have faith, because we trust him. We're seeking to obey him. And so, specifically, in the context of Habakkuk, this meant, among other things, trusting God's justice and pressing on in faithfulness whatever may come, whatever's going to happen to this man living in Jerusalem, knowing that eventually the Babylonians are coming. The righteous shall live by faith. Continue on in faith. Habakkuk's hope was to simply trust God and look to God for preservation and help. And we're going to see, as we get into chapter 3, and we'll spend two weeks in chapter 3, we're going to see him work this out, this faith, in the midst of knowing what's coming. And it's truly, it's, it's truly remarkable. And so living by faith begins with Denying yourself and picking up your cross. Coming to Jesus empty-handed. I have nothing of my own. I have nothing but sin. I have no reason to come to you. I can't bring anything to make you love me. Denying ourselves. Denying our works. We are to trust only in Jesus Christ for salvation. And living by faith continues from that point with trusting God's word. And seeking faithfulness to God's word. And so in contrast to the arrogant, the arrogant wicked who worship their own might, who worship false gods, who are arrogant and puffed up, we are to walk in faith, to proceed through our days trusting the Lord. This includes, again, as it would for Habakkuk, trusting God's eventual justice, As we've seen, it's going to come. But also includes, for us, trusting our futures to Him. It means, as we come across things in His Word, seeking to submit to those things, even when they're difficult. And so, press forward in faith. Trust God, even when it's hard. He's good And he is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy of our trust. Again, he's the God who sits in his temple, in his sanctuary, and looks out on the children of man. He's good. He's holy. He's of pure eyes. He's worthy of our trust and our obedience. And so as we struggle with this, we must confess our sin to him and Commit again to trust him and to seek with everything we can to take him at his word. And so God is indeed in control. He uses wicked nations like Babylon to judge less wicked nations like Judah. And this is the reality again that causes our theological categories to jumble into a knot. And our understanding of God to become confused and into a knot. How can this be? How can he do this? And the response we're given is that God's justice is a sure thing. That nobody will escape his justice. And we're called to trust God with this matter and to proceed in a life of faith. And this may not untangle our knots like we would hope. This may not untangle things the way we want them to. It may not be quite as neat as we would like. But this is the truth that God himself has given us. 
And it's up to us to trust that he has given us what we need, the answers we need to these questions, in order to live in this rebellious world. And so we must proceed in humble trust of God and his word, trusting that he is in control and that justice will prevail in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's much we don't understand. We know that you are holy and good and perfect and pure. And we know you are in control of everything. And there's only so much our finite minds can understand of that. And yet you call us to trust you with this. You call us to trust that this reconciles in your understanding. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us to trust you. Help us to know that as we see wickedness and injustice around us, whether it's in our own workplace, whether it's in our own city, our own province or nation, or wherever we see it in our world, help us to not fret, but to trust that you are in control and that none of this escapes your notice. And God, help us all the more to look forward to the day when Christ returns and the knowledge of the Lord does indeed fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, we yearn for that day and we long for that day. I pray you'd give each one of your children here strength, strength to persevere, strength to maintain, to press forward in a life of faith. We are weak people and we are so dependent on you and we ask you for help. Encourage your people now and throughout this day, even just for the the next days ahead, help us, Lord, to have gracious power over our own weaknesses and failures and sins that we all battle. Give us grace with one another. Give us strength and courage to continue to press forward in faith. We love you. Thank you for your kindness to us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.